Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Every family has things they don't talk about. Those regrettable beliefs espoused by your great-grandmother or why your uncles don't speak to each other anymore. Sometimes these are remnants of the old social order, things that were considered shameful 50 years ago that are perfectly normal today. Or the opposite. And sometimes members of your family just happen to be small-time mobsters. The acclaimed writer Russell Shorto, author of such histories as Amsterdam and The Island at the Center of the World, always knew his grandfather and namesake was involved with the Italian mafia. But Shorto never quite got around to digging up the whole tale until now, with the publication of his new memoir, Small Time, a story of my family and the mob. He joins us today from his home in Maryland, just an hour outside of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where half a century ago, the mob was king. Thanks so much for talking to me about the mob, Russell. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. I'm happy to be with you. So you jokingly summarize your book with the line, everybody knows the mob, but nobody knows the story of the small town mob. And I guess the one person I would have thought would know the story of the small town mob is the grandson of one of the top guys in it. So can you start us off by explaining just where the mafia sits in your family lore? You know, I'm sure in your family, I'm sure just about every family has things that nobody talks about. Um, And yet as a kid, somehow you know it. I mean, you just pick it up. You hear, heard it in conversations you weren't supposed to be listening to or something. Uh, so it was kind of like that with my grandfather, who was still active when I came on the scene, but he was definitely past his his heyday. Um, and uh, so, you know, you it wasn't anything formal like we don't talk about that. It was just more like people didn't talk about it. Uh, and yet you knew it was this heavy presence, this this thing back there somewhere. Uh, by the time I was really aware, my father and his father, my grandfather, basically didn't speak. Um, and most of my life, they didn't communicate, you know, and, and yet they both lived in this same small town and their circles overlapped and things. But he and my grandmother had split up by the time I was around. Uh, he had left the house and he had kind of been ostracized by the family. 
but uh, he was still would come around on occasion. In those days, when I was really little, I would go over to her house and hang out. So I would be there in the afternoon. And I remember a couple of times when he would come in and I seem to remember him because he was progressively uh, more and more a, a heavy drinker. And it seemed like he always had like a many days growth of beard and and just kind of mumbled and and she would like serve him a plate of food in the kitchen, you know, and I, I that's kind of the extent of my uh, memories of him. But he was always this kind of dark figure that people didn't talk about. One thing that stuck out to me was the moment you were first pitched on the idea of doing this book and it wasn't by your agent or your publisher. And it it's just right out of a movie. So can you set the scene with uh, with Frankie and how you decided to finally dig into your grandfather's story? Yeah, well, I uh, as I said, I kind of spent my whole life not thinking about it. And, and the irony for me is that I, I write history for a living. That's what I do. So you would think, okay, here's this history right here in front of you. And, uh, and yet because of this kind of unspoken uh, veil of silence, I didn't. And and everybody in my family who still lives in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, our hometown, I think pretty much the same rules applied. Um, but one uh, year, a few years ago, over the Christmas holidays, I was home. And um, a day or two after Christmas, somebody said, hey, Frankie's in town. Let's go see him. And Frankie was my mother's cousin. The 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 grandfather we're talking about is my dad's dad. Um, so my mother's cousin was back in town. He had spent his whole adult life in Las Vegas. He was a jazz musician. He plays, he still does, plays stand-up bass and he sings, you know, Fly Me to the Moon and all that kind of stuff. He was home and he had this little combo, jazz combo, and they were playing at this club. So we all went down and listened to him and that was kind of fun. And then there's a break in the set and we're all standing around and he looks across at me and he says, Russell, I've been wanting to talk to you. You're a writer. What are we going to do about the story? And I immediately knew what he meant, but I also said, well, what story? And he said very loudly, like, your grandfather, the mob. And everybody, you know, all these relatives, I have this memory of them all kind of, you know, shrinking because they knew you don't talk about this. But he had left home early enough that to him, these were just golden memories, you know. So, um so I kind of put that off. I said, oh, yeah, nice. But, you know, I, for the most part, the books I've written are, the history is like hundreds of years ago. And it's not so close to home. And for a variety of reasons, I said, oh, I'm busy, you know. But it stayed in my head. And then eventually I uh, I was living in Europe at the time. And I called him and I said, Frank, I, I came back for a week just to see what's there. Because I had convinced myself, too, that I write nonfiction. And these, uh, you know, I knew these guys didn't keep notebooks or anything. So what am I going to base it on? Uh, and he said, okay, meet me at my hangout, which was Panera Bread, and it still is. And so I went there and I turned on my recorder on my phone and, and I thought we were going to have a little chat. He starts talking and telling me some interesting things. And then some other little old guy comes up and then another one does. And before you know it, there are like six or eight guys around us and, and they're all sitting there, you know, leaning on their canes and things. He had put out the word. And really, four hours later, I hit stop on the recorder and I thought, okay, there's there's something here. And so my grandfather and his cohort, those guys are gone. But these guys who I was with, 
were the young guys who looked up to them and wanted to be them and and they had all their their memories and their whole you know to them that was the the time you know when the town was alive because Johnstown is really a, a a shrunken rust belt town now but the town was alive and they were young and they were in you know whatever way part of something and uh and it was all gone so they were eager most of them to uh to talk about it so but you know but then my next step was once i decided okay this is kind of exciting was you know these are old guys memories i don't know i'm not going to base a whole book on that so the process of my researching the book then was using this this base i did hundreds of hours of interviews but then reinforcing that with FBI Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, police records, and go into the county courthouse. My dad and I made this very kind of memorable father-son trip to the county courthouse where we had we requested all of his father's arrest records. As far as I was concerned, I was writing history, not memoir. And it was only when I was near the end of the book and I was talking to my editor at Norton, and I forget what we were talking. Oh, we were talking about an index for the book. And she said, well, memoirs don't really usually have an index. And I said, memoir? <laughs> this is a memoir. Um, so that was where I finally kind of made the jump and realized, okay, this is a memoir, which is also history rather than a history that has some memoirish elements. I'm glad you brought up your dad because I want to know how your dad fits into all this. Because traditionally, you know, from what I know about the mob from the movies, it's a family business. So where does your dad fit into the picture if he was the son of this mob guy and, you know, you're a historian, not a mobster? Yeah. My dad is was the uh, eldest son of uh, my grandfather. And I grew up with this story. We knew that my grandfather had been this, you know, dark guy, this dark honcho. And somehow I had been fed the story that he had tried to make it a family business. He had tried to bring his son into it, but my dad had resisted. And we, I kind of thought this, you know, grew up with this notion that he did this for us, that it was this noble thing. And along the way, in the course of my research, I'm talking to a couple of these old guys, and I mentioned something like that. And they looked at me like, you know, what are you talking about? It turned out it was exactly the opposite. My dad had desperately wanted to be in their headquarters was a place called City Cigar, which was a cigar shop in front and a pool hall behind. Um, and my dad, but whenever his father would catch him hanging out there, he would, look, you know, beat the shit out of him. And uh, that was his way, I guess, I realized slowly, that was his way, his inarticulate way of trying to protect his son. And somehow, and nobody has been able to get to the bottom of this, that story got completely flipped around. You know, so then what I realized later is my grandfather and his brother-in-law, they ran kind of the franchise. Mostly it was gambling, all these different kinds of pinball machines and numbers game and all these things. But over time, they they had their fingers in other businesses. They owned parts of bars and cafes and they owned a racehorse and, you know, all kinds of things, a boxing gym. And my dad, throughout my childhood... He owned a bar and then he started buying houses and he too had this, you know, operation where he was kind of a small town entrepreneur. And only while researching the book did I realize he was still trying to replicate his father, but just doing it in a legit way. He was just a regular up and up small town businessman. 
And still, through most of my life, the two of them didn't communicate. But he was, I think, trying to be like his father. That's such a funny reversal of the way you describe the mob kind of working at the time. You know, you go into the history of the mob, and at one point you sort of describe mobsters as like looking at the robber barons, the Carnegies, you know, yeah. of the 19th century and being like, aha, that's the blueprint for success. But we're going to do it the, you know, the illegitimate way. Because they had little choice. I mean, I've come yeah. to, in a funny way, sympathize with them. When you look at and especially in light of today with the anti-immigrant fervor now, there was a you know, virulent anti-immigrant fervor in the 1920s when my mm -hmm. grandfather came of age. Uh, and you know, people like him, they really had no options. And yet, as you say, they admired this kind of rapacious American capitalism. So you can see them creating their own version of it. So how did that version get started? How did the small town mob pick up? How did it expand from its hub in you know, the big cities that we traditionally think of mob towns. And like, how did it even get started there? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it goes back to the waves of uh, Southern Italian immigrants to the U.S., which by and large were beckoned by uh, companies that owned um, coal mines and by uh, plantation owners. It really starts after the Civil War when um, Southern plantation owners need another source of cheap labor. Uh, interesting coincidence of historical forces, the Italian Risorgimento, the unification of Italy, happens at the moment that the American Civil War ends. Hmm. So that's the first time Italy becomes a nation. You know, before that, it was like a dozen different little duchies and protectorates that were controlled by other countries. So they finally become their own nation. And there had always been this long-standing antipathy among Northern Italians for Southern Italians. They saw them as, they would often use the term African. They would, it's, it's almost like Africa, you know, which meant, you know, they were barbarians. And so ironically, one effect of Italian unification was the impoverishment of Southern Italians because the Northerners were just, uh, they controlled the government and they were just brutal to the Southern Italians which then causes uh, these waves of Southern Italians to, to desperately want to get out. And first plantation owners and then coal mine owners start to advertise. And uh, where my great-grandparents were from was a town in Sicily called San Piernicetto, which if you're standing there, it's way up in the hills. And it looks down, looking down in the distance, you see the sea there and the port of Messina. So that was the big city. And if you were on the streets of Messina in the 1880s or 90s, uh, you would see these placards saying, come, you know, we'll pay your passage. And uh, and so um, Antonino Sciotto, who was my great grandfather, uh, responded to this and uh, he got on a boat and ended up in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, working in a coal mine. And so that's how these great waves of southern Italians came in. They were welcomed in a sense in that these uh, capitalists of uh, America at that time wanted to use their cheap labor. But over the course of a couple of decades, after there were a couple of million of them, there was this huge anti-immigrant uh, backlash. So they were really repressed. And I, and I heard sort of memories of memories in my family of how they were treated and the conditions they lived in. Then comes prohibition. And they see an opportunity. And often it was uh, single mothers trying to support their family who would 
you know, a, a, an old guy in the neighborhood, like a kind of Italian protector of the neighborhood, would come by and, and in the case of my great-grandmother, say, here, we want you to operate a still. And so she had a still in their, their house. And then my grandfather, as a kid, would go around the neighborhood selling, as the memory goes, Coke bottles uh, filled with hooch. And um, that's how that's how that began all over the country. And then that organized. Uh, and then once Prohibition ended, by that time, they had this really uh, expansive operation all over the country, and they wanted to uh, find another revenue source, and that became gambling. And that, that that is the birth of the mob. And my grandfather's life tracks that utterly. He grew up and, and worked in Prohibition in that uh, racket. And then he shifts, and he's 20 years old or thereabouts, and he's uh, running card and dice games out of the trunk of a car. Wow. It does track so well with the story of the mob writ large, you know? And you describe at one point that Johnstown, Pennsylvania, is almost like, you know, a regional branch office of the big corporation that is the mob. Was it operating, you know, in the same way as, like, the Boston mob was just at a smaller scale? Were there differences? Yeah, that's a good question. And of course, I'm getting this, you know, through non-standard sources, and it's not all footnoted necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but just to, to kind of pick up from where I left it. So my grandfather becomes this hometown gambler uh, after Prohibition. Uh, and then the mob, um, these guys, as I said, as, and as you said, they, they really admired Wall Street. They admired this kind of rapacious form of American capitalism. And one of the things they did, starting in, in New York and expanding elsewhere, was to essentially open branch offices, you know. And so they would send guys out to other cities. And, they would, and once they did well, they would reward them with moving them to a bigger city. And uh, the other part of the equation was my grandfather's brother-in-law, who had grown up in the operation in Philadelphia, and uh, he um, uh, was involved in a counterfeiting operation and spent 18 months in prison. He chose not to rat on uh, somebody higher up, uh, and as a reward, he was given Johnstown. Uh, in my hometown, and he meets my grandfather's sister, Millie. She was working at a place called the Dew Drop Inn, and he met her there. And so presumably through her, he met my grandfather. And my grandfather kind of was the local guy who knew the town. Here comes Little Joe, as they came to call him, because he was short. And uh, he brings the, the franchise. And so together, they build this operation in town. And that's, I think, one example. I, I don't think it was terribly unique. I think that's one example of how this worked. And I've heard stories of how it worked in places like Akron and San Jose, Butte, Montana and Anchorage, Alaska. And, you know, it was it really connected the country in a way that the interstate highway system did. And it was being developed at about the same time. So it's a funny, uh, funny because it was. Uh, and so you asked about how it was uh, the same or different from the big cities. I think it was the same in many respects, but I think it was a little bit more innocent or maybe a lot more innocent in that, uh, you know, everybody I interviewed, all the research I did, I was trying to find, okay, what else were they involved in? Yeah, I know they were doing gambling. What about prostitution? What about drugs? And everybody would say to me, you know, your grandfather and little Joe, they didn't want to mess with that stuff. They had a rule, no drugs. We don't want that 
crap. And I guess I have to believe them because I've never found any evidence that they were involved in that sort of thing. So maybe because of that, then there wasn't much in the way of murder <laughs> um, until right, right in the middle of my story is a bookie gets murdered. And uh, that coincides with other events to be become the beginning of the end of the operation for them. Your grandfather's rise into the Johnstown mob does track so neatly with the story of the mob. Does his downfall also track with the sort of disintegration, the like loss of power that the mob began to experience in the 20th century? Yeah, I think mostly their heyday, uh, Little Joe and Russ, they set up their base, the city cigar shop, uh, during World War II from the moment the war ends. And that's when they really take off. You know, everybody's coming home and the country starts booming in the post-war era. So from basically 1945 until 1960, that was their heyday. There are several forces, I think, involved in their success in this arc and also the arc of the mob generally in these ways in the country. One, I think, is actually television. They were basically providing entertainment services at a time before TV was was common. And I think there's an inverse relationship between what percentage of households have television and the mob and its influence going the other direction. Um, and everybody over a certain age in town who I've talked to, they weren't in the mob, but they knew these guys. They were friends or acquaintances. They knew what they were doing. Everybody played the numbers, uh, sports book and for bigwigs, there were card games around town, and that was just entertainment in the days before TV. The beginning of the 50s, I think 5% of households had TV. By the end of the 50s, 90% of households had TVs. Throughout the 50s, what else was going on was J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, is continuing to claim there's no such thing as an organized national crime syndicate. Uh, and then finally, he's forced to... Um, to do so. And so that from that moment, the FBI begins to crack down. 1960, JFK comes in and Bobby Kennedy, his brother, is attorney general, and he's got this mission to, to defeat the mob and root it out. And uh, that happens just as this murder of a bookie happens, who had worked on and off for Russ and Little Joe in town. And he was stabbed in the chest with what seemed to be an ice pick. So it was like right out of central <laughs> right casting. Out of a mob. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um and uh he he went missing and you know, you see in the in the like gossip paper, you can track it, like where's his name was Pippi, Pippi DeFalco. Where's Pippi? What happened to Pippi? You know? And uh and finally about two months later, they find his body in the river. Everything explodes. Everything that had been you know, the police and the, the mayor, everybody was kind of on the take. And it was this cozy, you know, everybody's aware of this, but it's not hurting anyone kind of thing. Everything changes then. Suddenly there are FBI uh, agents all around town and they're sending their reports in. And uh, and that's the beginning of the end, although it, it stretched on for, for a long time after that. But it was never the same. Yeah. I mean, is your family the same now that, you know, the story is out in the open and you have sort of spoken the unspoken, this thing that was sort of lurking in the background has been voiced, is out for, you know, total strangers to read about. Has your relationship with your family changed at all now that, like, you're talking about it and it's out in the open? 
Um, we, you know, my, my family is a wonderfully open <laughs> Italian family, and this is enough in the past that it's really history. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, most people in my family are not, were not themselves affected uh, materially by this now. I mean, people in the past were. There are one or two people who kind of didn't want me to do this, and I haven't been speaking a lot with them lately because I just don't, I, I, you know, I didn't want to. I realized, and I've uh, since talked with several writers who've written memoirs, that whenever you do something like this, there are going to be people in your family who feel this is infringing on my personal territory and I don't like it. And you have to figure out how to deal with that. And I had conversations early on with uh, those people in the family and and said, look, I understand where you're coming from. I will, I can take certain steps, won't go certain places if you think that's too much. But Ultimately, this is my story, too, and I'm entitled to tell it. And my guide in that was my father, who was probably the person most affected by all of this. He was this old AA guy, and he had this saying, you're only as sick as your secrets. So he, you know, became my partner, uh, and we would go all over town. He would call up old boys who I didn't even, I'd never even heard of. And he'd say, we're coming over and we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about the old days. And, and, uh, so he really opened doors for me and also was my guide in this, like, no, it's good to do this. It's good to, you know, get this out and to tell a story. I've long believed as a writer that there's just a great positive power in, in nonfiction storytelling. And now it's just a little closer to home. Did your relationship with your dad change at all? Yeah, I think it, uh, we, you know, spent two, three years together doing this. And then he died right as I was near the end of the research. Uh, and that was the most time I'd spent with him since I was a kid. So I, I don't think we, either of us realized when we started it. I think we both kind of thought, oh, this is, this is an interesting project or something. I don't think it occurred to us that we were doing therapy for him in a way, because he was so profoundly affected by what his father was and and then what his father did to him and to his family. So we were looking at why my father became the way he did. And I was his eldest son. And so we were looking at our relationship too. And we weren't saying, we weren't talking so much right on the point in that sense. We weren't saying, look at us, looking at our, looking for, I mean, but we were doing that together. And it was, uh, you know, it was an experience. It was more than I had uh, bargained for or thought about when I began it. Yeah. But I mean, it definitely sounds like it was worth it. The stories of uh, fathers and sons of Antoninos and and Russells. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I'm now this great proponent of you know, doing family history to to kind of systematically explore your family myths is a very powerful thing. So while I'm work- researching this book, I was asked by Baruch College, uh, part of City University of New York, to be a writer in residence. So I made my workshop writing family history. And it was really, I mean, there were so many people wanted to get into it and we had such a great time. And so afterwards, I developed an online course called tellyourfamilystory.com. And uh, it is such a cool thing to do, you know, to be able to to guide people because not everybody wants to do it. And it may be that people are comfortable with the myth they were told, you know, what it, what they were told as a child. But what you were told as a child 
is something that was suitable for a child to hear. If and when you're ready, this is my little message to all those who are interested, um, it's such a, uh, a deep grown-up thing to do to say, all right, but I want to get beneath that. And, 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 you know, a lot of people may resist when you sit down to interview them, but when you sit down to interview, you're someone else. You're no longer the son or daughter or the niece or nephew of the person you're interviewing. You're now an interviewer. And they may react differently. I've found that, that they're suddenly like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this for posterity. And suddenly you find your aunt's telling you about this, you know, torrid love affair she had that she would never tell her nephew about. But, uh, you know, you, you suddenly um, become someone else and you allow people in your family to do as well. And so you can open up all these avenues. There is no better time to start digging into your family history than this moment when we were all so far apart from one another and really looking for ways to get closer. Who knows? Maybe you've got a mafia connection somewhere in there. My family was spied on by the East German Stasi, so you can never underestimate your mother. In the meantime, you can find links in the show notes to Russell Shorto's new book, Small Time, as well as his family history course. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.